You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Hello again, I'm Monsignor Smith. We are considering the moral magisterium of John Paul II. Now clearly the doctrinal moral patrimony of this Pope, John Paul II, is quite extensive, in fact very extensive. So when we focus merely on the moral magisterium, we're only looking at a portion of his teaching and at that we're being somewhat selective. So far, we began with the Pope's kind of signal contributions, one of them being that unique encyclical Veritatis Splendor. Veritatis Splendor was 1993, which is an encyclical on the fundamental underpinnings and the presuppositions, the architecture basically of all of Christian morality. We have referred time and again to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which was also published under the authority of John Paul II. A considerable part of it, about 27% of the catechism, is on the moral teaching of the church. In doing that, so first we looked at how he himself, the method that he uses, namely to return to those sacred sources, which is the conventional approach of sacred theology, to look for principles that are in Holy Scripture, that have been clarified by sacred tradition and taught in any given age by the teaching church. In our second segment, we looked a bit at the notion of freedom and hopefully the correct notion of freedom and the linkage that freedom has to be really rooted in the truth and geared toward the good. Contrasting that with a kind of secular individualism, perhaps a contemporary notion of freedom, that's very much at odds, not only with the teaching of the church and the council, but also it is incompatible with the teaching and the example of Jesus in the New Testament. Thirdly, we looked at a part of the norm of morality, namely what's external to us we call law, but what's internal we call conscience and its application. It applies to every conscience application, so literally it applies to every moral question. In this segment, I'd like to just reverse a little bit and point out because we mentioned it in the beginning when we're trying to give an overview of the moral magisterium of the Pope. It's not just the encyclical contributions which are gigantic, in fact, singular, and also the catechism. But also, this Holy Father has used what are called apostolic exhortations, and I'd like to explain what that is. Every three years, they have a synod of bishops in Rome, almost about 200 bishops, representative, proportionately representative from all the hierarchies in the world, so the larger ones send a few more delegates than the smaller ones. And each time, there's a single topic, a single topic for consideration, and these bishops from all over the world, together with the Holy Father, examine that topic rather closely for the better part of a month. First two weeks are basically general sessions, the last two break down into rather smaller language groups where they make propositions and offer some conclusions, all of which go back to the Pope, after which the Pope writes what he calls an apostolic exhortation. Now this began after the Council and was shepherded basically by Pope Paul VI. 
And usually it's that month of September or October in Rome, and normally by December the 8th, Paul VI put out a short little document of seven, eight, ten pages, which he called an apostolic exhortation. The present Holy Father has taken a different approach. Not different, but much more extensive. For instance, the first one when he was Pope was on catechetics, and he put out a document called Catechesi Tridendi. But in 1981, he put out an apostolic exhortation on Familiaris Consortio. Familiaris Consortio was on the role of the Christian family in the modern world. All of these are available from the Daughters of St. Paul or the United States Catholic Conference. But you can see by the bulk of it, basically, this is not an eight-page document. In fact, this is a 140-page document, very, very extensive. Does not come out within a month of the conclusion of the Synod, but usually a full year later. And in some instances, these have been devoted very much to moral topics. Clearly, the one on the role of the family in the modern world does that. But the one that followed that as well is the one I'd like to focus on. Reconciliatio et Penitentiae was 1984. Now those are Latin words for what they sound like in English, reconciliation and penance. And it very much had to do with the sacrament of penance and the question of sin and controversies about that. And it's also true that together with the encyclicals, which are extensive and rather fundamental, are also these apostolic exhortations, which are much more focused on perhaps a singular topic, just one single topic, but very thoroughly done, very extensively covered. It's also true under this pope that the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, which they sometimes refer to as the CDF, Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, have put out certain either instructions or declarations on moral topics. And that congregation is the highest teaching office in the church. And in the penultimate paragraph of all of those, it always says at a general session of the congregation it was brought, and the Holy Father approved and ordered that it be published. So back in 1980, there was a declaration on euthanasia. In 1986, there was a letter on homosexuality. In 1987, Donum Vitae was one on bioethics and technological reproduction. Uh, 1994, there was one on divorce and remarriage. Even Christian liberation back in 1986, which had to do with a, a critique of so-called liberation theology. Now, all of these, too, have enormous impact on moral teaching and on moral practice. And it's important to understand that the formal declarations of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, these are not liberal documents or conservative documents. These truly are the official doctrinal teaching of the Catholic Church. So if someone were to ask, for instance, what is it that the Catholic Church teaches on euthanasia? That declaration is the official one. I'd like to go back, though, to the one on penance and reconciliation which was the apostolic exhortation, quite extensive, of this Holy Father that he published in 1984, which was a year after the Synod that met on that particular subject. This, too, can be tracked in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, numbers 1846 to 1876, take up the question of sin, and also Veritatis Splendor, Numbers 65 to 70 take up a thing called the fundamental option, which we will look at, and then more specifically the notion of mortal sin and venial sin, because there's been some confusion on that. If we begin with the definitions, again, true to his method, 
true to his method, the Pope always goes back to begin with some passage, some reflection, some meditation on Holy Scripture. So in Reconciliatio et Penitentiae, he goes back both to the Cain and Abel event and also to the passage in the book of Genesis on the Tower of Babel. Why so? We often, depending on our understanding of the definition of sin, which is any word, deed, or offense against the eternal law or against the eternal word, namely against God, there's a contemporary notion that something really can't be wrong unless it hurts someone else. If you put that there and you don't consider God someone else, uh, we can end up with kind of fluid notions of sin. And what the Pope wants to do is go back to those fundamental sources, particularly the book of Genesis. And he says, if you look around, what, what accounts for the divisions that we see in the world, the divisions between men and women, the divisions between certain classes, even the divisions between what we used to call power blocks, the East and the West. And that fundamental division actually can be rooted back to something that we read in the book of Genesis. Remember, it was only after Cain turned away from the father that he turned against his brother. It was only after he turned away from the father, God the father, that he turned against his brother. And there begins a first fundamental division that would fit the classic definition of sin. If we move on to the Tower of Babel, if you read that passage in Genesis 9, what was their fundamental reason for trying to build the Tower of Babel? They wanted to build something. They wanted to make a name for themselves apart from God, apart from God. And again, it was this turning from God that they turned in on themselves and against themselves. And the, the unhappy result there was after they turned from God, they couldn't even communicate with each other. They couldn't speak the same language. It was literally, if you will, Babel. Therefore, in our definition and our understanding of sin, we have to pay attention to those sacred sources. And if you look in the Catechism, in paragraph 1849, it defines sin as an offense against reason, against truth, against right conscience. But it says it has been defined, and they take the definition from St. Augustine, as any word, deed, or omission contrary to the eternal law or the eternal word, contrary to God. So sin fundamentally is an offense against God. Other things might be a breach of manners. They might be a breach of etiquette. They might be some kind of a breach of protocol or politeness, all of which involve some kind of a virtue or the lack thereof. But fundamentally, sin has to do with turning from God. And that insight of St. Augustine was later clarified by St. Thomas Aquinas, and he called it an a versio, a turning from God, a versio adeo, and a conversio, a turning to ad creatorum, some other created good in the place of God. And that is the fundamental, traditional, and scriptural definition, whether we call it missing the mark or exaggerating but it's preferring our word to God's word. In a sense, I suppose, all sin is kind of a Xerox of the original one, where an invitation was made, but man, in his arrogance, decided, I'd prefer to do it my way than God's way. I prefer to live by my word than God's word. And if that involves actually turning from God, it will cause division. It will cause division, because usually people who are not at peace with themselves 
have great difficulty being at peace with, with some others. Now, if we ought to attend carefully to this apostolic exhortation, Reconciliatio et Penitentiae, two paragraphs of it, numbers 16 and 17, that have a great deal of moral theology and a great deal of moral teaching here, which are incorporated and repeated in the encyclical Veritatis Splendor, and if you check the footnotes of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, they're repeated there. Why so? A thing came up at the Synod. There was much mention, the Holy Father said, because during the Synod, he sits there while all the bishops make their speeches. They begin with eight-minute speeches, and then they break down into groups. But he said there was a great deal of mention of social sin. And then in the exhortation, he spelled out three or four ways in which we can correctly understand that. But one particular way, which he does not think can be reconciled with Catholic doctrine. So if we go with him carefully there, I think it would be important so that we avoid a contemporary misunderstanding and perhaps some confusion. In what sense is sin a social sin? Well, first he would point out, and this is all in number 16, uh, from the point of view of human solidarity, solidarity, of course, is kind of a favorite word of John Paul too. But in any kind of corporate understanding of the human person and uh, some kind of a commitment to the common good, Catholics would remember, say, from your mystical body theology, that any good, any good work, any virtue, any contribution that builds up the body of Christ does help everybody in that body. And we call it a mystical body. Mystical because it's more than a metaphor. It's not just a way of talking. And yet it's less than a physical body. We are not literally parts of each other, although obviously we are and can be related to each other. But according to St. Paul's understanding of the uh, mystical body of Christ, whatever good we do, whatever help we produce, whatever apostolate we have fruitfulness in, that builds up and strengthens somehow, really but mystically, the members of the body, the members of the body of Christ. Now, the dark side of that same reality is whatever wrong we do, or perhaps unleash, has detrimental effects on the other members of the body of Christ. So if that's what someone means by social sin, namely, all sin really does have some consequences on other people, on other folks, as virtue helps build them up, sin does quite the opposite and tears them down. The Pope says that's a perfectly acceptable understanding of social sin, if you mean it that way. Secondly, he recalls for us a traditional doctrine of the communion of the saints, which is almost the same thing. But he uses a phrase I have never seen before in official Catholic teaching. Just as there is a communion of the saints, he points out, there's also a communion of sin. So just as there's a law, if you will, of ascent, good that we do, fruitfulness that we help produce, helps lift everyone up. So if there's a law of ascent, there is also a law of descent. Again, the darker side. The darker side of that same notion of corporate solidarity. If you will, the first kind of reflects the mystical body theology of St. Paul in his epistles. The second more, the communion of the saints, which is a wider doctrine, but clearly Catholic doctrine. And it means that we really are connected. We are connected. Now that can open itself to good consequences, but also to bad consequences and impediments and, if you will, a moral form of pollution. 
Again, if that's what someone means by social sin, the Holy Father says that's certainly an acceptable and a traditional understanding. Thirdly, he points out certain things are directly, directly contrary to our neighbor. When we say in the great commandment that we should love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul, and your neighbor as yourself, that second commandment, Jesus teaches, is like the first. And when we do harm to our neighbor, who of course is made truly in the image and likeness of God, one way or another, that offense is truly against God. And he gives many specific examples, namely actions that are truly against justice in interpersonal relationships. So when we violate someone's dignity, when we violate their true rights or their Christian rights, certainly this is a direct attack against neighbor. It's social in that sense. He speaks then of the rights of the human person, and he says the first is the right to life. The first is the right to life. So that offenses against the right to life, he said, certainly that has a social aspect, and we can call that a social sin, if you will. Further, he speaks of offenses against human freedom, and there are still many parts of the world where people, through no fault of their own, perhaps ideology, perhaps ethnicity, perhaps tribal, they really do not enjoy basic human freedoms, which we enjoy in the United States, and we just kind of assume that the same or something similar is available everywhere. And that's not truly the case. It wasn't that just the Iron Curtain came down and now all the flowers are in the garden are beautiful. There are still problems in that area. And then, of course, he speaks as well of the common good, and he gets very concrete. By the common good, he means that those people who have the opportunity and the ability, sometimes the office, to transform society and improve it, they fail to do so out of laziness, out of the fear of being different or what have you. And he says that omission, that omission is a serious omission and a social sin against the common good. He also speaks of workers. He speaks of workers who either by their absenteeism or their poor non-cooperation and shoddy work that when an industry begins to decline, obviously, this has consequences for other workers, other people who are supporting their families. Again, if you want to talk and call that a social sin in the sense that it has sinful consequences, that is surely the case. And lastly, he speaks of human communities, or what we used to call class warfare. Number four, whole communities, whole blocks of people who are against other people simply because they're of a particular group. Your classic expression of this was the class struggle in the Marxist analysis that the bourgeoisie or the professional class, simply because it was professional, be they teachers or doctors or lawyers or what have you, that class had to be pitted against the working class. And simply pitting one class of people against another group of people, taking no account of their individuality, taking no account of whether they're doing good or doing evil, but this simply contrasting and opposing one group against another group, the class warfare, if you will. Now, sometimes when this gets big, it gets awful generalized. And when things get generalized, they tend to get very anonymous. But the Pope makes the point that regardless of the proportion of some of these social problems, and they are and they can be gigantic, some of them unfortunately longstanding, Somewhere in the middle of that mountain, there remain always 
individuals who either bring this about or fail to cure it. Individuals. And the tendency is to blame everything on the system or on structures and talk about social sin in that sense. And that's what he wants to then distinguish. So far, if by social sin someone means basic human solidarity and what goes against that, something like either the mystical body or the communion of saints, obviously what we do, even individuals, even the most private acts that we have, do have consequences for the other members of the mystical body and in or within the communion of saints. Thirdly, things that are directly against the neighbor, someone's rights, someone's basic dignity, and the fundamental right to life. Obviously, if you lose that right, you lose everything. Clearly, these are social and community war, if you will, class warfare. But then he draws a very sharp line. And his point is, the last point, it is not legitimate, however, to so contrast social sin that you eliminate the understanding of the possibility of personal sin. He does not accept that. And that's, I think, what happens when people talk about transferring everything to structures or to a sinful situation or to a sinful system. Somewhere in those structures, somewhere in that system, there remain individuals who are responsible and accountable, or they should be, either for bringing it about or failing by their omissions to bring that about. So he wants to make that point that we can't just slough it off. Is there then a correct understanding of social sin? The Holy Father teaches, yes, there is. But he is saying it is somewhat analogous because technically we can only predicate good and evil of human acts. And human acts, if you recall in our second segment, human acts we defined as what proceeds from the will with a knowledge of the end what proceeds from the will with a knowledge of the end. You could tell me that there's a sinful situation or there's a sinful structure, but I can't absolve a sinful structure. I mean, I can, but nothing happens. It's almost like C.S. Lewis's old insight, which he explained in his book, Mere Christianity, when he said, you can't have a good community unless you have good people. Because even if you have the best plan, or a sinful structure, the worst plan. But even if they're the best plan, you still need individuals who have the integrity, who have the guts, who have the fortitude and the courage to put that into practice. Otherwise, things don't change. And I think we know that even if we go and you write out a marvelous social blueprint, and we're not against marvelous social blueprints, but you could have the best blueprint on the blackboard or on the paper, but it's only individuals who put that into practice, who live it out, who make it real. I think Lewis is right. You can't have a society without good people, without good people. And usually, even if you come up with a good scheme or a good blueprint, uh, the foxes in this world will always find some way to play the old game under the new rules, unless there's not a conversion, unless there's not a change. And that's one of the Pope's points here, because remember, this exhortation is called Reconciliatio et penitentia, reconciliation, reconciliation. Unless someone has that change of heart, unless they really have the metanoia is the jargon that they use in theology, that change of heart, change of mind, things don't change. Things don't change just by thinking about them. Things and situations, even atrocious situations, they only change when individuals become convinced and convicted 
to put some change first in themselves and then carry that through by putting that change into practice. So although the terminology is prevalent, and in fact it came up at that synod in 1983, but when he wrote the Apostolic Exhortation in 1984, he wanted us to have some clarity on this so that the notion of personal sin doesn't get transferred out or simply finessed. Some people come on like a truck, you know, as long as it's Dow Jones or Dow Chemical, this is a big structure, a big company, they're clear as a bell about what's right and wrong. But as soon as you talk about, well, now personally, where are you? Personally, what can you do? Or personally, what you have failed to do? They're much more reluctant to talk about. Now, we should be consistent. If sin is a reality on the social level, it's a reality as well on the personal individual level, unless we're operating under the illusion that somehow sin has mysteriously disappeared. Maybe they put something in the water and it all went away. The Pope argues no. So the term is an acceptable term, provided it's correctly understood. And I think you will find in number 16 of Reconciliatio et Penitentiae, when the Catechism refers it, it refers back to that. When Veritatis Splendor refers to it, it refers back to that. The Catechism as well, so does Reconciliatio, but now moving from paragraph 16 to number 17, it takes up the important question of the distinction, which is very traditional in Catholic teaching, between mortal sin and venial sin. And again, in some of the contemporary writings, among at least some authors and advocates, there's a great deal less than clarity in this regard. I believe if you look at the Catechism, in this case 1854 to 1860, you will have a presentation of both the definition of mortal sin and of venial sin. We also have it in the encyclical Veritatis Splendor, but it's much more extensively covered and constantly quoted in both those documents, the encyclical and the catechism. What they're constantly quoting and going back to is Reconciliatio et Penitentiae, this time number 17. The Pope, true to his method, first goes back and looks in Holy Scripture. And in this case, he even goes back to the Old Testament, which is a little bit surprising because the words mortal and venial do not appear in the Old Testament. But what the Pope does by numerous citations is point out that the concept, the concept is present there, even though the terminology is not present in the old and appears in the new. What do I mean, the concept? The Holy Father goes through the book of Deuteronomy and Leviticus and he points out a number of events which were considered so serious that they required that someone either be separated from the people or they required capital punishment as the punishment in the Old Testament. Now, among nomadic people, of course, if you were separated from the community for all practical purposes, you're dead. You're on your own and in a desert mentality or in a nomadic situation, it's very difficult to survive merely on your own. But some things were forms of idolatry, forms of murder and incest and some other things were considered so serious that these people had to be cut off from God's people, separated from God's people. For all practical purposes, they were among the living dead. Other things, which were either inadvertent or insufficiently reflected or merely breaches of dietary laws, they required a little sacrificial offering, some kind of penitential offering 
And depending on someone's status, the king had to make a big offering, the priestly class, all of the house of Aaron had to make some. Poor people would make little offerings as two pigeons or turtle doves, as we recall later in the New Testament, that at the presentation, when the parents of Jesus went to make an offering, it's instructive, they made the poor people's offering. Now again, is the terminology mortal venial in the Old Testament? No. But the concept, the concept is there. Things that were so serious that they separated you from the people of God. Other things which could be repaired by some ritual performance, some sacrificial offering. So the concept, if you will, is not just similar but the same. However, the terminology is not. It is not until we read in the New Testament, in the first epistle of St. John, St. John uses the expression that some sin is so serious that it leads unto death. It leads unto death. And he says other things are not leading to death. Now, death here, of course, is spiritual death, not physical death. And that's really what we mean when we talk about mortal, mortalis. All right? Now, in the conventional understanding, that involved three things. As the Catechism actually points out, it involves serious matter, sufficient knowledge, and consent. Consent would involve the will. Again, we have to be talking about a human act. And we say we only predicate good and evil of a human act, what proceeds from the will with the knowledge of the end. So there has to be a sufficiency of knowledge that we're knowing what we're doing, and willing, consenting, that there's a sufficiency of consent so that this act is ours, it is our doing, our knowing and willing our doing. But in this analysis, the traditional analysis, this is what appeared in the Baltimore Catechism. It's also what appears in the New Catechism in 1855. It says, mortal sin destroys charity in the heart of man by a grave violation of God's law. And that notion of gravity or grave matter is crucial. In fact, that's literally the definition in 1857. For a sin to be mortal, it says, three conditions have to be met together. The sin whose object is grave matter, committed with, they say, full knowledge and deliberate consent. I've always been a little bit careful about the word full knowledge. What they're doing is they're translating what's in some Latin textbooks. And the textbooks do talk about a voluntarium perfectum. Voluntarium is consent or will. And perfectum in Latin looks like perfect in English, but it's not. Perfect, after all, is 100% perfect. 99.9 .9 is not 100%. And actually what perfectum in Latin means is per facere, to bring something to a certain adequacy, to bring it to a certain level. It really means sufficient rather than perfect. Because in a sense, only God has perfect knowledge, and I suppose only God has perfect will or perfect consent. And that would be a strange recycling if we ended up with a definition of sin that only applied to God and did apply to us. That would be a little bit goofy. But if we understand it, it's sufficient knowledge, sufficient consent. But the important one that is our only link with objective morality is this question about grave matter. And this is no small question. Some genuine heavies, by which I mean St. Augustine, Augustine of Hippo, St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Raymond of Penafort, those three men said they would never dare on their own authority try to determine what grave matter is without the positive teaching of the church to guide them. They said they would never dare on their own authority try to do that. Why so? Because this has grave consequences. 
This can involve inclusion or exclusion from the sacramental life. So this is something some of the greatest theologians who ever lived, St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Augustine of Hippo, they never took it on their own authority, but they always took the positive teaching of the church to guide them in this matter and to be careful in this matter. Often they'll go back to, again, to Holy Scripture, to 1 Corinthians 6 and some other things. And it is here that perhaps some of the contemporary misunderstanding comes up. And that involves, I believe, two things. On the one hand, it involves what both the encyclical, Veritatis Splendor, and the apostolic exhortation, Concilio Penitentiae, calls the fundamental option. Now, the fundamental option is a theory. It's a theory that is proposed largely or originally. It was with Father Joseph Fuchs, who taught for a long time at the Gregorian in this country. Father Jim Keenan up in Weston, maybe Father Kopfensteiner, who was at St. Louis, now at Fordham. Certainly Father Timothy O'Connell, and I think probably, certainly, Father Bernard Herring. And perhaps the greatest advocate of this so-called fundamental option was Father Fuchs. And Father Fuchs gives the following definition. What's he trying to say? In a sense, they're being critical of the traditional Catholic approach because connected with this is how you're going to define sin and how you're going to understand it. And their thing was, look, how can you have this elevator situation, this elevator theology, where you're kind of in the state of grace one day, in the state of sin another, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out. And it started by saying, let's take a, a more careful look at how deeply someone is invested personally in their activity. And that's what they mean by a, a fundamental option. Not so much a singular choice about a singular thing on a singular day, but they would say that a singular act is really a little bit too thin to express the totality of a human person. But here begins the vagueness. When Father Fuchs, for instance, defines his fundamental option, he says this is at a very deep level of personal engagement, saying that it is unthematic, unreflective, unarticulated, and inaccessible because it is so deep in the core of someone's fundamental personality, whether they're going to fundamentally turn to God or turn away from God. Now, it's problematic when you start to define something and you tell me it's unthematic. That means you can't thematize it. It's unreflective. We can't really reflect on it. It's unarticulated. That's, we can't say what it is. And further, it's inaccessible. That's not a helpful definition. But this is where that conventional distinction is really kind of taught, in, taken in half. If, as I said before, your conventional definition of sin was a turning from God and a turning to some other good in the place of God or God's expressed will. So simultaneously, a turning from and a turning to. It's a little subtle, but it is at the same time, a turning from and a turning to. What the people who are pushing the fundamental option are saying is that you can turn to some other created good without turning from God. In fact, something like adultery. By any standard in ancient Christian tradition, in fact, some of the ancients put that down as the three great sins, adultery, apostasy, and murder. So from the year one, adultery was considered grave matter. But if someone has a fluid notion of this fundamental option, you could say that at the core of their personality, they're not really turning from God in this case. They're not turning from God, even though they're turning to something that God forbade them to do.
in ways I think Pope Pius XII in a talk to Lenten preachers in February of 1944 summed it up without using the terminology. He said, how is it that if you say yes to the forbidden fruit, are you not at the same time saying no to the God who forbade it? Which is true, and that's your conventional turning from and turning to. But some of the people who are pushing the fundamental option, what they're really saying is individual actions, individual singular actions, are largely on the periphery of your life. They don't really involve you at the core or the depth of your personality. And if they don't, then they really don't disturb your fundamental option because you couldn't say, at least you can say verbally, you can express it, that fundamentally you are still opting for God, even, in fact, when you are doing what God formally forbade in grave matter. In grave matter. Now, no one in the Christian tradition has ever denied that adultery, apostasy, or murder are grave matter. No one has ever denied that. But with this theory, you don't so much deny it as you kind of cut it in half. And this has led to basically the proposal by some of what they call a three-part definition or a redefinition of sin. And again, in paragraph 17 of Reconciliatio Penitentiae, the Holy Father brings this up because it was brought up at that synod. Some are making a distinction of what they call mortal, serious, and venial. Now, obviously, it's important how these are defined, how they are understood. What's the concept that's really at stake and operative here. Perhaps one of the most widely expressed was an article that appeared in America Magazine many years back now by Ladislaus Orsi, who is a canon lawyer who teaches in Washington, D.C. And at the time, many years ago, there was several controversies about first confession, particularly the timing of first confession and first communion for the little ones. So that many people said, you know, is this really appropriate? And then the conclusion was basically there should be a separate training, a separate catechesis for each one. But uh, should we really be talking about grave sin with little children who have just reached the age of reason? And the answer probably was not. However, in this article, although it was in a popular magazine, a more popular journal at least, American Magazine, the trouble is when you redefine sin, you don't do it just for little children, you redefine sin for everybody. And that's what happened. Let me give you those definitions so that we can chew on them a little bit. What did Orsi define as mortal sin? He said it was a free and permanent option by man to remain alone and exclude God from your life. So it's a free and permanent option to remain alone and exclude God from your life. That's pretty serious. A free and permanent option. Notice now the word option, not an action but an option. Remember the uh, overall shell that we're working under is that fundamental option. But a free and permanent option to remain alone and exclude God from your life. Very radical, very drastic, obviously anti-religious to exclude God from your life. Well, that's what he defines as mortal sin. Let's look at the others and then come back and we can try to apprise these. Serious, what does he define as serious sin? Serious he calls Many acts, now acts in the plural, he says, many acts which betray evil trends in the heart but do not break the relationship with God. Many acts, so it's plural, it's not a singular act, but many acts 
which betray evil trends in the heart, but do not break the relationship with God. Do not break the relationship with God. It's important that we remember that. Finally, venial sin he describes as a certain refusal to grow or a certain tardiness in our pilgrimage toward God. Now let's go back and examine these concepts because there's something pretty important here. Mortal sin, how does he define it? A free and permanent option to live alone and exclude God from your life. Serious, many acts that betray evil trends, but do not bring about a break with God. Let's look at that first one, a free and permanent option by man to remain alone, exclude God from your life. That's almost a Luciferian choice. That's almost kind of an eyeball-to-eyeball -eyeball confrontation with the Almighty. Get out of my life, stay out of my life, I'm on my own. Technically, that's what we call impenitence. Impenitence, when someone even rejects the means of reconciliation. And if it happens at the end of someone's life, we call it final impenitence. I don't doubt that this can happen. I just suggest I think it's pretty rare. It's a rare person, and I mean that, a rare person who would ever make some kind of permanent free option to live alone and completely exclude God. It's almost like being ah-religious. I'm not even sure atheists consciously go to that level. I think it exists. It can exist, but it's very, very rare. Then again, serious are many acts that betray trends, but they do not bring about a break with God. They do not bring about a break with God. Now, that's kind of significant because our normal understanding of mortal sin, after all, mortal means death, what? Death spiritually, the death of God's life in us, the loss of sanctifying grace, that is the break with God. So what happens in this arrangement is basically if you define mortal sin up to almost a Luciferian choice that almost no one makes, I think you could take this second one, what he calls serious, and that could probably serve as a definition of venial sin. Many acts that betray evil trends in the heart, but do not bring about a break with God. So if you define mortal up to the level of impenitence and serious down to where it's kind of a working parallel with venial, then mortal sin as we understand it has mysteriously disappeared. And that's what the Holy Father wants to repudiate in the apostolic exhortation, Reconciliatio Penitentiae, because this would amount to a gigantic change. If you notice, in most of this discussion, matter, even grave matter, has never been mentioned at all. It's all life choice, fundamental option, core option, life orientation. It's all intentional. Now, it is true that there have been some unhappy explanations of your conventional grave matter, sufficient consent, sufficient knowledge. But we should realize that the only link in that traditional approach with objective morality is the question of matter. Obviously, by definition, consent is a subjective category. Only the person, only the agent, only the doer of the action knows what he or she consented to. I can't use a CAT scan or an MRI or get a can opener to look in someone's head. What someone says they consented to, we must understand is that's what they consented to. Similarly, what they know, someone's knowledge is a subjective category. Only the person knows at a given time what they knew or did not know. If you replace grave matter with a fundamental option, with a fundamental choice, with intentionality, then the whole thing becomes subjective. 
then all the points of reference are subjective. And serious matter really doesn't play. And that's what gets replaced by this permanent option. And then, if you will, sin becomes basically a formal thing. Not material, just a formal thing. Notice, then you cut your classic definition in half. That's why they could say that even though I'm doing what God forbade, thou shalt not commit adultery, fundamentally, in my core choice, I'm still fundamentally opting toward God. I think basically there's a contradiction in there. And that contradiction is what the Holy Father repudiates in the apostolic exhortation, because he argues that we cannot make a theological category out of this so-called fundamental option. Part of the trick is, in Catholic terms, in Catholic terminology, in Catholic parlance, very often these words mortal and serious are interchangeable. But strictly speaking, they refer to different things. Strictly speaking, mortal refers to sin, serious refers to matter, serious or grave matter. You can say something is intrinsically wrong or it is seriously wrong of its nature. You would not say something is intrinsically mortal. Because the mortal, remember, involves not only serious matter, but then the added consideration of sufficient consent and sufficient knowledge. And it's there, basically, that the Pope takes up the question and repudiates this category, just as he said, yes, there's a correct way to understand social sin, provided you do not explain it at the expense of or through the elimination of personal sin. Similarly here, the emphasis on intentionality can be so extensive that the traditional explanation kind of disappears. So that if we go back then to the catechism to kind of summarize, when they use the terminology in 1857, now that's the catechism 1857, for a sin to be mortal, three conditions must be met. A mortal sin is one whose object is grave matter, which is committed with full knowledge and deliberate consent. Footnote 131, the Catechism refers you to what? Reconciliatio et Penitentiae, number 17. That's why I said before, almost all the references in the Catechism on this particular segment refer to that apostolic exhortation. In 1858, it says, grave matter. What is grave matter? What is grave matter? It says it is specified by the Ten Commandments corresponding to the answer of Jesus to the rich young man, do not kill, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your mother and father. The gravity of these are more or less great. Obviously, murder is greater than theft. But one must also take into account who is wronged, who is wronged. Violence against parents, obviously, is a worse kind of crime or sin than violence against a stranger. And the Catechism adds, as it's quite proper and quite traditional, in 1859, mortal sin requires, again, they say, full knowledge and complete consent. I still think it's better to talk in terms of sufficient knowledge and sufficient consent, but that presupposes the wrongful character of a particular action, either in its opposition to God's law or God's revelation, which implies then the consent is sufficiently deliberate to make it a personal choice, to make it my choice. That in a given situation, if I know sufficiently adequately what I'm doing, if I consent sufficiently adequately to what I'm doing, that I really do know in this case that I am choosing my will to God's expressed will in divine revelation. In fact, the Catechism goes so far as to say 
feigned ignorance. Feigned ignorance and hardness of heart do not diminish. And it, there's, a, there's a phony kind of ignorance. We say ignorance excuses for many things, and it does. But there are certain forms of crass and supine ignorance or affected ignorance. Affected ignorance is fake. Affected ignorance is when you make sure that you cover both ears and you say, you know, don't, don't tell me what the rules are here because I don't want anyone to cramp my lifestyle. That person is not ignorant. Uh, that borders on malice, and that's not acceptable. And the Catechism makes a very exceptional statement, 1860. Unintentional ignorance can diminish or even remove the imputability of a grave offense. But it says, no one is deemed ignorant of the principles of the moral law, which are written on the conscience of every man. It's a very strong statement. No one, no one is deemed to be ignorant of the principles of the moral law, which are written on the conscience of every man. So that there are certain fundamentals, basically, in the Ten Commandments that are so congruent with our nature that it is difficult to pretend that someone could be ignorant of those. Honoring parents, not killing, not stealing, telling the truth, that type of thing. They say the promptings and the feelings of passions can diminish voluntary actions, as can external pressures. And that's true. Even in the conventional situation, even in the conventional presentation about grave matter, sufficient consent, sufficient reflection, the traditional approach had to take into account those factors. And factors do interfere with people's freedom. Factors do interfere with knowledge. The Bible actually is more intent with a different attitude. There's a big difference in the Bible between someone who is repentant and wants to begin again and someone who's unrepentant. And the Bible is like sandpaper toward that second attitude, the unrepentant. Because in a sense, it's a Xerox of the original. God expresses his will. I reject that and prefer to live by mine. This is a sadder part of the chapter, but I think the Pope says we have to be realistic. If he didn't have a solution, we wouldn't bring up this subject. But we do bring up because with reconciliation as a possibility, which is the rest of the apostolic exhortation, we bring something up that fortunately through the mercy of Jesus Christ, it can be solved. But about this, we should be better informed, at least a little bit careful where certain jargon is concerned. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.